to read this morning's sermons text, and you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. If you I don't happen to have a Bible with you, you can find uh, that page 913 in the chairback Bible in front of you for this morning's text. One of my personal study Bibles that I have has specifically been published to have wide margins and lots of space for annotations and notes, and if you were to turn in that Bible to Acts chapter 5, you would find a little circle around Acts 5.20 and a line out to the side that says, Good Ordination Text. <laughs> and so for many years, I've been waiting to preach that Good Ordination Text as we come this morning to ordain Seth Miller. And so what we want to look at this morning from Acts 5 is verse 17 through 21. To give it some context, though, let me begin our reading in verse 12, and then I'll pray for our time, and, and we'll begin. So here now, as God speaks to us through his word. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even... They even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that Peter, as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace that your Son, in His kindness and His compassion towards us, pours out gifts upon His church. That includes teachers, pastors, and ministers. As we come this day to see your work of setting Seth Miller apart for the gospel ministry, we do ask that, of course, you would speak this word uniquely to him, that in his future ministry he might be found faithful. But we pray also that you would speak it to every single one of us, that our hearts might be encouraged, that our souls might be knit together in love, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's the normal pattern. I think I've told many of you this before on, on Fridays in the Stone Home. It's movie and pizza night. And my wife works often her one shift a week at the hospital as a NICU nurse on Fridays, and so uh, the pizza making responsibilities typically falls to me, and the way that the normal schedule will go when daddy's at home on Fridays as we tend to make the pizza dough that we feel like we've rather perfected in a variety of ways. We'll make it early in the afternoon and we'll go spend a few hours outside playing together with the kids, often just letting the pizza dough rise before we come back in and put all the toppings on and, you know, begin the family fun night at that point. And usually at this point, our two youngest kids, Boston and Sarah, quite commonly will help make the pizza. And so we were doing that a few weeks ago, and we had it all together. You know, the ingredients were combined, and the seasoning was applied, and it was all mixed together. And as we stared into this big silver bowl, everything looked good, except I suddenly said, well, we goofed on that one. And Sarah said, why? It looks fine, Daddy. And I said, 
I forgot to put in the yeast. And, of course, without the yeast, it doesn't rise, it doesn't grow, it needs that essential ingredient for it to be what it, it needs to be. And it's so often true in even a church, something similar can happen. That you can look into it and see, oh, it looks fine, what's wrong? But as time will soon show, it seems as though it doesn't grow as it ought to. It doesn't rise in spiritual strength as God intends for it to. And it's because perhaps it might be missing this, this vital, this necessary, this irreducible ingredient. And so much of our life, isn't it consumed with thoughts about growth? You know, kids, at your house, you might have perhaps on a wall in your room or a closet, a pencil marks where uh, your parents have shown how you've grown over the months, the quarters, or the years. Businesses care about growing their profits. Of course, political parties care about growing their influence and their voting power. You have social media icons care about growing their followers. You have sports franchises care about growing their trophy cabinet. And in the Christian life, too, we, we care about growth. As God has urged us, even in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that's Christ. In a similar passage, Colossians chapter 2 says that we are to hold fast to Jesus Christ, who is the head, from whom the whole body grows with the growth that is from God. So it's not just about personal growth, though, that we want to think about. It's about congregational growth. And we're turning today to Acts chapter 5 in particular because the book of Acts, perhaps in a way that no other book of the Bible reveals, and so consistently portrays what is that necessary and vital ingredient to God's people growing. You might know the story of Acts well enough to know that it's in many ways just the account of God's Spirit working through His people to bring stunning, rapid even surprising growth as the gospel's advancing from Judea all the way out to the ends of the earth. What's the vital ingredient, though? It was in 1907 that a Scottish theologian and well-known preacher at that time in the early 20th century world, a man named P.T. Forsyth, he was invited to cross the pond and come over and deliver this prestigious number of lectures at Yale University at the time, and he began his first lecture by simply stating, it may perhaps be an overbold beginning, but it is with its preaching that Christianity rises and falls. And I don't know if you think it's an overbold beginning to say that the church rises, falls with its preaching. But certainly we would want to, I think, acquit Forsyth of his Potential overboldness because he simply read his Bible well. He knows the story of Acts well because it's the Spirit working through the preaching of Jesus Christ that grows God's church. And then it seems necessary on this day when we're ordaining Seth Miller to the gospel ministry, a ministry that is peculiarly and particularly about preaching the gospel, that we think about a story from a book that's all about the preaching of the gospel as the church expands, it rises, it grows so often in stunning and and supernatural ways. So our theme this morning then is an angelic commission for gospel ministry. The angels commission for gospel ministry. That's what we're thinking about today. And of course it does have immediate and perhaps most pertinent application to Seth as he sets out as an ordained and installed minister this day. Uh, but you might not know that we have something approaching 10 men in this church that are prayerfully pursuing and studying for gospel ministry. And so it likewise will paint a picture for them of what it means to have 
faithfulness in the ministry. I hope you might join me in often praying for the next generation in this church that God would commission from our midst ministers and missionaries that likewise need to know what faithful gospel ministry looks like. And if you read stories and accounts of old from men that God has set apart, missionaries that God has sent, it's so oftentimes a simple sermon when that person was young that the Lord uses to send them on the way to advance the kingdom. Perhaps that's today. But it's going to apply to all of us, I trust, by the end, too, because what I want to see by the time we conclude is how this text is is helping us understand the nature of a congregational life that's shaped around God's Word. So we're going to see, first of all, the context of ministry, secondly, the commands, and then third, the content from verse 17 through 21. So context of ministry. Let's notice again verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him. Now, if you just suddenly jump into a section of God's Word like we're doing today, kids, you should ask a question of a text like this, of a verse like this, a question that I suppose is one that you've probably asked of your parents numerous times this week. Why? Why are these religious leaders rising up? Well, you could stretch the answer to that question all the way back to the beginning of chapter 4, I mean, it's there in chapter 4 that we begin to see this theme emerge with uh, unique and peculiar, clear language that it's the gospel's advance through adversity that so dominates the story of Acts. But you only need to look up to the preceding paragraph to get a sense of the situation. You notice verse 12 and 13 of chapter 5, spiritual power attending the apostles' ministry to such a degree, verse 14 tells us, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. It's hard to know by this point in Acts exactly how many people are claiming the name of Christ, but uh, it's not unreasonable to think something like 40,000 men, women, and children in just a very short matter of time are now claiming the name of, of Jesus Christ. And you might have been in churches long enough to know that few things are as perturbing to self-righteous religious leaders as explosive growth somewhere else through someone else. Because what we know, you see the end of, or the middle part of verse 17 in that parenthesis, at least in my ESV translation, uh, these, these men that are rising up are the sect of the Sadducees. Students, I wonder if you know anything about the Sadducees. Uh, I suppose the, the most important things that you need to know about the Sadducees are, one, they only believe the first five books of the Old Testament were authoritative for their faith and life. Significantly, they didn't believe in angels. Significant because God's getting ready to bring an angel. And thirdly, they didn't at all believe in the resurrection from the dead. Theirs was a religion without resurrection. So naturally, they would have pronounced opposition, you would suppose, to this newfound faith, exploding, growing, rising, that is in every way grounded on the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so what you see happens at the end of verse 17 is that they're filled with jealousy. Filled with jealousy. Boiling envy, you could almost say. And there are a few strategies that Satan often throws against even faithful ministers. And envy and jealousy is one of them. You might know this as you pray for pastors and have friends that are church leaders. And so often there can be this sense of jealousy over, why isn't my church larger? Why isn't my influence greater? Why don't I have this reputation for power and efficiency and effectiveness? Well, for whatever the exact reason, 
They're filled with jealousy, and this is something different than the Sadducees' normal opposition to the Pharisees, you know, because they were kind of the populist Jewish sect of the time the Pharisees were, so the Sadducees would naturally oppose them. But it would be something altogether different, the, the boiling nature of their jealousy, that these uneducated men from Galilee show up and start preaching a, a resurrected Christ, and then thousands and thousands of people seem to be responding day in and day out, week in and week out to the ministry. So they respond as you might expect them to. In verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. This is the context of ordinary ministry. I come from an athletic family on, on both sides of our extended family. At least we like to play athletics, probably is a better way to say it. And when the family still gathers together and grandparents come in and there tends to be some sort of athletic event that punctuates our time together. And when my dad comes in and he's affectionately known as Pops to our children and when when, when Pops arrives in his older age, he no longer can uh, display athletic prowess on the football field, baseball field, and uh, soccer field as perhaps he used to, but there still is the need for an athletic tournament when Pops arrives. And so he has, in his close-to-retirement age, become increasingly infatuated with disc golf, throwing these frisbees through the air. And our kids have joined him in that fascination and infatuation. So every time Pops arrives, there's a, there's a big disc golf tournament that happens in the Stone household. So this was going on last Saturday. And we got to the, the final hole, and, and Haddon, our third, was in the lead. And he ended up losing on the final hole as I, I tapped out for the victory. And as we were <laughs> sitting together later on that night, Emily was right here and Haddon was right there. I said, hey, did you hear about Haddon's personal record in the disc golf round today? Because he played amazing. And Emily said, yeah, I did, but I'm sure you didn't think about letting him win, did you? <laughs> and I said, of course not. <laughs> And I looked over at him, I said, the sun will soon set on my winning ways, and it will soon rise on your decades of dominance. And he got a good smirk out of that. But the point is, many of you parents understand, what you're doing in such moments is nothing comes easy. This is how it ordinarily goes. And what we actually get a picture in these first two verses of our text today is how it ordinarily goes in gospel ministry. It's the advance of the gospel amidst adversity. Sometimes that adversity is from the outside. Sometimes it's from the inside. Sometimes it's from professing believers. Sometimes it's from unbelievers. You know, they're put in a public prison, certainly in part to uh, make sure the, the watching society knows that these men are troublers of, of Israel, these apostles. It's altogether likely, isn't it, that Seth won't probably face public prison for his ministry. But he, he will be put in a prison at some point of complaint and criticism, of affliction and opposition, of discouragement and disappointment. That's how it often goes. Not always, but often goes, this ordinary adversity, which then leads to the deliverance that gives us our next section of the commands for ministry. Because you see in verse 19, we're told, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought the apostles out. 
It's the first of, I think, five angelic appearances in the book of Acts, usually an angel showing with some degree of miraculous and, and supernatural power. And uh, you might know that the, the Dr. Luke wrote this book, and he was a very careful and insightful historian. And so, therefore, you might be like me, and you come to uh, verse 19, and, and you wish for more information about how this jailbreak actually happened. Because we don't know anything other than the angel let him out of prison. Well, did the angel show up, kids, and... Slide into the jail and grab the key ring off the warden's belt and then silently and sneakily go and let the apostles out. Or was he like Samson of old and just walked up to the door and just lifted it off its hinges and said, come on out. Or maybe, because it seems more likely the way that angels tend to work in the Bible, you know, ordinary locking mechanisms don't mean anything to them. He just goes and opens the door and out they come. We don't know either, do we, uh, what the apostles thought when that angel showed up. Did they shrink to the back of the cell in fear? Did they race to the front of the cell in excitement? Or did someone shout from the back, where have you been the whole time? <laughs> Whatever it is, he, he lets them out. It's a release from prison that's a release for proclamation. Notice these commands that come in verse 20. Go and stand in the temple and speak. Go Stand, speak. Now, you might be like me and have a hard time remembering certain key dates. It was common in years past, even centuries past in Christianity, for a man's ordination date to be unusually etched upon his heart. I was just reading earlier this week the, the diary of a 19th century pastor who reflected every single year in his diary on his ordination date, which was September 20th, 18. 38. And I pulled out just one thing that he wrote on the 11th year of his anniversary. He said, calling to mind this ordination day 11 years ago. And he goes on for several sentences about the ways in which he has failed and wants to grow. And he says, some brokenness of heart for some power to cry for future blessing. He says, I see Ezekiel got some of his messages in his 12th year. May the Lord God of Ezekiel remember me. In a way that we want to be true, February 20th, 2022, etched upon Seth's heart. Go, stand, speak. But not just Seth. Our heart as well as a congregation recognizing that this is, we trust, the divine act of God's providence bringing a man into our midst, saying what his commission is amongst us to go, stand, and to speak. It's a commission, isn't it, that's little more than preach. Because preaching is the sum and substance of the gospel ministry. It's certainly true that there's more to being a minister, there's more to being a pastor than preaching. There's never less to being a true gospel minister than preaching. That's why one old preacher would speak about the pulpit as the Thermopylae of Christendom. It's there that the fight is lost or won, he said. As students, you might know Thermopylae was this famous mountain pass in the ancient world where the 300 men from Sparta, they just held it against a 100,000 strong Persian army for an entire week. It's there, this old preacher said, that the fight is won and lost. These are the commands. Go, stand, speak. But let's notice in our third section, the content. Because you see, go, stand, speak to the people all the words of, of this life. Notice, first of all, in the rest of verse 20, the setting. He says, stand in the temple. 
It's the ordinary place when people would have been gathering even at 6 a.m. in the morning, like was probably likely for this time. 6 a.m. in the morning, gathering there for conversation, fellowship, certainly uh, for worship and, and God's kindness and God's sovereign decree. He's set Seth in this extension of God's new covenant temple, which is the church, the dwelling place of God. He's to go and stand and, and speak where people are ordinarily gathering for truth, gathering to worship. Notice the scope, too. It says, all the words of this life. That's why one of the best things that aspiring ministers and, and pastors, church leaders, officers can do is read their Bible a lot. Knowing every paragraph, knowing every page, so they know when the situation comes, when you might need to give the gospel's promises. Or another time, you might need to give the gospel's threats, the welcomes, the warnings, the comforts, the convictions. Not one single word is to be left out of a faithful man's ministry. Not one single word is to be left out of a faithful church's ministry. It's a whole Christ that builds whole Christians. It's a whole Bible that builds a whole body. But notice, of course, thirdly, the center of the preaching, not just the setting and the scope. Go and speak all the words of, of this life. Uh, you may be expecting, or perhaps you could expect, I guess, that you would have the summons of this angelic commission being go, Stand and speak all the words of the gospel, or go stand and, and speak the, the words of God, or go stand and speak of Jesus Christ, but it says all the words of this life. And that's actually much more of a common way in the New Testament than you might realize. As a shorthand for saying the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only one day prior in the, the book of Acts that Peter's delivering a sermon, and he refers to Jesus Christ, the prince of life, the, the author of life. You might know the story in John chapter 6, Jesus has been portraying and proclaiming in his ministry that he is the bread of life. He's the bread of heaven. And anyone that follows him has to feast upon him. And by the end of chapter 6, there's countless people that were following him that say, well, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And they left. Jesus looks around at the 12 there that are with him that he had called unto himself and says, do you want to leave too? Peter says, where would we go? You alone have the words of life. And you want that kind of quality in your preachers and your pastors. You want that kind of quality in this church. Where else would we go? There's, there's Christ there. Oh, what, what churches don't need are political pundits or cultural commentators or jolly jokers behind the pulpit. What do they need? Men who preach Jesus Christ. Do you want to know what that sounds like? Just skip down to verse 30 through 32 of this chapter. You find numerous occasions, don't you, in Acts of what preaching this life sounds like. But look at verse 30 through 32. It's just later on that day. Proclaiming, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Oh, what you would see if you studied the sermons and acts is that preaching Jesus Christ, it's direct. It uses lots of second person pronouns. You must repent. You all need to come to Christ for his forgiveness. Even the royal Texan of y'all must know Christ Jesus if you're to be saved from certain judgment. 
It's direct, it's pointed, it's powerful. That's why Thomas Goodwin would once say, speaking of gospel ministers, as Isaiah and Romans speak about it, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring good news. And he says, the feet are more beautiful, the more gospel that are in the mouth of the preacher. So these are context commands and content of ordinary ministry. We want a man who knows the context. We want a man who obeys the commands. We want a man full of that content. So pray for such things. But what about us as a gathered people? What about us as a, a community of, of Christ? Well, yesterday afternoon we had a burning day in the stone backyard. There was a burn pit that had accumulated over recent months, mostly of cedar trees and branches, trunks that I have cut down in, in recent weeks. And if you know anything about dry cedar wood, it burns fast and it burns hot. And so we lit that thing up, and it felt like within five minutes, it had just kind of boiled down to an ash heap. One of the kids came out, you know, hoping to see this raging and roaring fire, and was like, oh, the fire's gone already. And I grabbed one of the few remaining dry branches and just threw it on that heap, and <laughs> suddenly it just was set aflame. And in a similar way, in the book of Acts, healthy churches are quite like that. You might look... It seems altogether ordinary. It seems altogether basic. Perhaps there's nothing remarkable about its appearance. But what you find is that people start to get closer. They start to get nearer. And as they do, you, you find the Spirit, through the working of the Word of Jesus Christ, setting their hearts aflame for the love, the glory, and the beauty of the Savior. And that's the kind of church that we want to perpetuate here. As people come, as people draw nearer, as they get closer it may look rather ordinary from the outside, but there's this heat that belongs to our love for Christ that only sets others aflame for the glory of God. And I want you to see from this passage is a few characteristics of, of such a congregation, such a people burning with love for Christ in that way. I want you to see, first of all, it means that we must trust God's sovereignty. Trust God's sovereignty. If you look again at verse 19, you have this gospel conjunction, but... But during the night, the angel delivered the apostles out of prison. There's times in our ordinary ministry where you might feel shut in. You might feel enclosed. You might feel as though, I don't know how to get out of here. I don't know how to go forward. I don't know how to serve the Lord in the way he's called me to here. Well, what it's going to give you hope in the midst of that sense and experience. But God's power, his purpose that prevails all of prevails over all of Satan's strategies and schemes. For, of course, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against this church. Trust in God's sovereignty. Number two, preach Christ urgently. It's what they did. They went right back into the temple, knowing that that may lead to their eventual death, perhaps their martyrdom, perhaps just another night in prison. Whatever it was is urgently. Christ needed to be proclaimed. Christ needed to be mentioned. Christ needed to be urged. If you ever pay attention to the urgings of your heart, perhaps even the urgings of your lips, what you, what you are feeling, what you are hearing, is what your heart desires and loves the most. And we must be a place that the urgency is always attached to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not urgency that's attached to personal preferences, cultural realities, matters of the moment, but the eternal gospel that is found in Jesus Christ himself. 
want to be a place that you can come even today and perhaps arrive as someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ and we have confidence that such a person will hear that salvation is found in only this name. That through repenting of sin and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, there is the promise of everlasting forgiveness, a wonderful welcome into God's family that every time someone sits in these chairs on a Sunday morning, they're going to hear the Lord Jesus Christ because it's urgent in our hearts. Number three, obey God immediately. Look at verse 21. Isn't that what they do? When they heard this, the apostles entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. There's no wondering aloud of what's going to happen to them by virtue of this commission. They just go and obey. You might be in here today and you too need to just go and obey something the Lord has given to you, a commission he's placed upon you, a commandment he's spoken to you. Finally, suffer for Christ joyfully. Suffer for Christ joyfully. Trust his sovereignty. Preach Christ urgently. Obey God immediately. If you'll let me just kind of expand out the story of this scene in Acts chapter 5, uh, you might know that uh, they're roughly around 6 a.m. found preaching again in the temple. And the Sanhedrin are gathering not long after that, and they're like, go get these men that we put in jail yesterday. Uh, the person that's leading the jail goes, and he reports back, they're gone. But I found them. Uh, they're preaching in the temple. And so the Sanhedrin says, well, come, why are you doing what we told you not to do? And, and Peter says, doesn't he? Well, we must obey God, not men. And then he begins to preach this mini-sermon that utterly enrages the Sanhedrin to such a degree that they meet out a sentence upon these men, beatings, which in that culture means the 39 lashes that would often put a man on the brink of death, so bloodied and bruised that skin might not be on their backs anymore. But look at verse 41 and 42 of chapter 5. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. That's what God demands of Seth Miller. Every day, not ceasing to teach and preach that the Christ is Jesus. That's his angelic commission. God is requiring much of us collectively, isn't he? That we too would trust in God's sovereignty, that we would proclaim Christ urgently, that we would obey God immediately, that we would suffer for Christ joyfully. For that's our angelic commission as God's people. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask simply this day that you would perhaps revive our hearts in love for Christ, that you would restore our hearts in the beauty of your Son, that by your Spirit you would compel us to be people that you have called us to be in the Lord Jesus Christ, following him fully, with hearts devoted to make him known, to glorify him, to trust in him at all times. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen.